the podcast. The Naked Truth About Women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about her. Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Her Podcast. Welcome to our show in episode 452, as we share the truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today her, hmm, resilience? Let's talk about this. This is going to be such a special show, one I've really been looking forward to and that I know will really resonate with you. Before we begin, just know that the episode is sponsored by Solaray, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y, vitamins, minerals, and herbs rooted in nature. They have a special gift for women, the new award-winning Her Life Stages products, providing support for the menstrual years, including PMS, perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. This is an integrative, holistic approach to having a woman's back throughout her entire life journey. To learn more about her life stages, run on over to your local health food store or check it out at solaray.com. Again, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y.com. Man, you'll be glad you did. All right, and here's a reminder to click on iTunes to rate and review today's show because the entire Her Podcast team just loves to hear your feedback. That's why. We love it, love it, love it. I'll give you another little reminder later on. All right, it's time for Her. So we hear so much about stories of great victory, the hero's journey, a real Joseph Campbell moment where, you know, you you came from a real cluster, a mess, just a hot mess. And it could be awful, just really awful. And then somehow you made it and it's all very cool. Well, maybe not so much. It's the way you frame it. So I had read a little something about a book written by our guest, Emmy Neatfeld. Emmy, welcome to the Her Podcast. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, the book was called Acceptance, a Memoir. And coming from such a young person, I was wondering, oh no, is this going to be like one of those Gen Z things? And what, you know, like, where are we going with this? And I'm going to tell you the nuance that captured my entire team was the fact that it's not so neat that, you know, it's not like, yay, everything turned out just wonderful, just like a little Disney show or whatever, that it's complicated. And coming from your background, writing this memoir, which I personally found to be absolutely stunning. I couldn't put the damn thing down. Thank you very much for ruining my sleep two nights in a row. And I really wanted to get your take on how the whole thing happened. So for everyone out there, this was, quite frankly, the story of a young woman who ended up having a background of homelessness, foster care, some funkadelic times in institutions, and finding that her key to escaping this this flippin' nightmare was to get into an Ivy League school, which she did, and then go on to quite a career. But looking back, 
having some thoughts about what this whole journey was really all about anyway. So Emmy, why don't you kind of tell us what really prompted you to write the memoir? When I was 17, right after I had applied to college, I had gone through this process where I really believed an Ivy League school was going to be my ticket out of this family instability, of not having a place to live. Everything was riding on this one acceptance. And in order to try to get into a top college, I realized that I was going to have to sell myself as this perfect overcomer who had not only survived being in foster care and my parents' mental illness and survived with good grades, but I had to show that I was made stronger by this experience. And at the time, you know, 17 years old, without a supportive family or even knowing where I was going to live that summer, that just wasn't true. And I felt so much pressure that when we go through something difficult, we often are shoehorned into these narratives of like, oh, you know, it's all for the best. We're always made stronger by everything that happens to us. And even as a teenager, I was like, there's parts of that that are true, but that's also leaving something out. And I really wanted to capture both the amazing journey that I was on and that would ultimately totally transform my life. And I really wanted to look at how are those stories kind of holding us back and preventing us, especially as women, from recognizing like the real problems that are going on around us and working to change those, those larger issues. So what you're really saying to a certain degree, I'll just grab a nugget or two, is that it's not that simple. You said something in an interview that I kind of liked. I'll probably paraphrase it if I don't butcher it. And it was in one of the interviews you did with somebody in a nice coffee cafe that you loved. And in it, you said, you know, this whole issue of resilience, let's have a conversation. Because, you know, not everybody who ended up going to Harvard and getting the big job with Google and all the rest of it. Well, some people like you did that, but not everyone who's resilient ends up going to Harvard and going to Google. Tell us what that really means, because what I love about this, your whole perception on this is that it takes the whole concept of grit and resilience to a different place. And it seems to be more realistic. Tell us, what did you mean by that when you talked about not everybody who's resilient ends up at Harvard? I was coming of age during the Angela Duckworth grit era. A lot of listeners might have seen the viral TED Talk, 25 million views. And she really framed grit as this trait that allows some people to succeed while others fall behind. And it's this very American view because it's super individual, right? Like, oh, you have something inside of you that's going to help you completely get out. Horatio Alger. Exactly. And I mean, there was even a scholarship. One of my favorite parts of the book to write was about the scholarship that I received from the Horatio Alger Association. And they've recently been in the news because Clarence Thomas is one of their members and he was being inducted the year that I was there. So I got to meet him and write about it. 
but it was very much this pull yourself up by your bootstrap view. And once I had gotten into Harvard, I felt like people saw me and they thought, oh, that must be this girl's story. And she must have done something like so different personally or just been like this strong person who really deserved to get out of it. And the really dark side of that is that it implies that a lot of people who are in poverty or homeless, that they just don't deserve better or that there's something wrong with them that's really keeping them from success and that it's not some bigger issue at play. And so as I was writing Acceptance, I was both really interested in what were the things that made me feel agency and that let me believe that I did have control over my life and that I could change my life for the better. And also, what were the factors that did help me get into Harvard and that enabled me to succeed that not everybody has access to, but if more people had access to that, more people might be in a better place right now. I love that. Well, we're going to start with something that just, I mean, I'm sorry, but it just absolutely hit me. And that was your family. All right. So there was that whole thing in the beginning where you were going to be introducing your family to your fiance and you were having quite the little party in your mind about how in God's name do I introduce my hoarding mother and the whole gig. And that whole thing about, well, you created a story to tell others so that you wouldn't even have to go there. But now it's too late because now we're talking about like you're getting married to somebody and they kind of want to know. So the mother-in-law wears the little pearls and a nice outfit. And then there's your mom. And tell us about your mom. My mom is a huge personality. She is super generous, very funny, very talkative. She was a crime scene photographer for more than 30 years. And she also dealt with compulsive shopping and hoarding. And especially after my parents divorced when I was about 10, it made it really hard for her to take care of me. And we had, as many mothers and daughters do, a very fraught relationship. And unfortunately, part of that fraught relationship was that she brought me to therapy, like trying to help me deal with divorce and with all these transitions. But it really turned into a power struggle about who in our family was sick. It became blaming me for some of the problems that were going on at home. And there was just this period of several years where I really began to resent her and resent the way that I was receiving all of this therapy, all of these psychiatric drugs. And I was talking to doctors and I was like, you know, the problem is really going on at home. And my mom needs to be getting treatment, not me. Yeah. And I think many of us have families, you know, I sometimes look at my own, which is how shall I say, a rich, adventuresome experience. In the background, you could hear da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, you know, for the Adams family. <laughs> we have Cousin It, we've got the whole thing going on, Wednesday, that's me, et cetera, et cetera. So many of us have these wild and crazy situations where we're desperately trying to make sense of it all. And at the same time, we have to present this to the world, and how do you do that, especially when there's like a lot of explaining that needs to be done? <laughs> and there it is. And so I got to, you know, give it up to you for 
coming out, as it were, about your family, uh, about your mom, and that whole issue of just trying to create a truthful narrative, you know, when you finally spilled the beans to your future mother-in-law, and somehow you conjured up the courage to do that, I thought that that was extremely touching and compelling, because so many people have been in that position. It's like, you know, here's crazy Uncle Frank, and you say to yourself, how do I make sense of a family that wasn't exactly looking like Leave it to Beaver or something or the Brady Bunch and back and forth? And you started with that. But you also, throughout the pages, what I picked up was that you felt as though no one really had your back. Tell us about that. My adolescence was very difficult for me. And part of the problem was that I was having these conflicts with my mom who believed that I was sick and needed intense psychiatric treatment. And at the same time, my mom had really always been the one person who believed in me. And so we would go to the doctor and my mom would be like, Emmy is a genius. You know, Emmy's brilliant. And I would be like elbowing her in the ribs, being like, shut up. You're making us both sound crazy. But she really did have that faith in me even when it wasn't always rational. And so as I went into these hospital settings, as it just became harder and harder to live at home, and you know I had all these side effects from medications, I kind of spiraled and got worse from the ages of 12 to 14. By the time I was 14, I was sent to this locked residential psychiatric treatment center. And this was the type of place with bars over the windows, multiple locked doors. We had a classroom on site, but the school was really minimal. And the lesson that I was receiving there was like, this is your life now. You are going to be stuck in these institutions, maybe forever, and you shouldn't really aspire to anything bigger because that's just not realistic. That's not what's going to happen. And so I have this one cheerleader on the outside who's my mom who I can't live with, who has done things that really were harmful to me. But then I have these adults who are my therapists, who are supposed to be supporting me. And later on, it's my foster parents who just don't seem to believe. And I was going into this, I ended up getting this big dream of I want to go to college, like as soon as possible. Where did that come from? I'm dying to know because a lot of kids like yourself, and when I say kids, when you were younger, right, get sucked into the vortex of all of the insanity around them. You know, they they start believing people when they say you're psychotic um, and, and all the rest of it. What was it in you that came up with the whole idea of college as an answer? I actually have my mom to thank for this too. Unlike a lot of kids who end up in foster care or end up homeless, both of my parents did go to college. They went to state schools in my home state of Minnesota. But my mom in particular, she had dreamed about going to Stanford since she was a young girl. And I was always like, Stanford, that's so random. But when she was growing up, they were one of the only really prestigious colleges that was co-ed. And so that was really her one shot. And she did not get in when she applied, but she always framed it as, I almost got in. Stanford almost accepted me. 
And if things had just been a little bit different, she would have gone to Stanford and her whole life would have been different. And as a teenager, this was so frustrating to me because we would be scraping the ice off our car in the morning. And she'd be like, if I had gone to Stanford, we would be living in California. Like there would be no snow. You know, when my dad did something bad, she was like, if I had gone to Stanford, I would have married a neurosurgeon. If I had gone to Stanford, I would have been a neurosurgeon. And this alternate reality that she constructed for herself, it really rubbed off on me because I grew up with this idea that if you went to certain colleges, especially, your life could be totally different. And parts of this seem like a little irrational or like fantastical thinking about it. But having gone to Harvard, I can say actually some of her predictions of how her life would have been different are probably really true. Actually, Emmy, research backs you up on this. There's actually evidence-based science behind it. You know, if you look at the statistics and the metrics associated with where you went to college and the network that you established and what effect and impact it had on you going forward, there is no question that it was very beneficial if you were able to optimize the opportunity itself. So to your point, yes, it meant a lot. Yeah. And I think especially for women. Oh my gosh. Yes. No question about it. So you saw this, you know, what your mom said about Stanford really kind of stuck in your brain and you thought, hmm, and her life would have been different that's all we can really say. We can't really say it'd be the grooviest thing on the planet, but we can say it would have been different. So then you you put it in your mind. Did you have an Ivy League school in your mind at that time? It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to the University of fill in the blank. It was more like I'm going to Princeton or Yale or Harvard or Stanford or Berkeley or, you know, something like that. I had a friend's older sister. Their family was quite poor. But she had gotten into both Columbia and Harvard, and she chose Columbia, and she got me a t-shirt, and I wore that t-shirt all the time. This was just the coolest girl in the whole world to me. I looked up to her so much. And so that was like my big dream that honestly, once I was in these locked facilities, I was like, I can't even let myself dream that. But I did have one doctor when I was in a eating disorder clinic that was filled more with upper middle class girls who had really encouraged me, like, maybe you could go to a college in just a few years. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can go when I'm 15 or 16, because I couldn't even imagine being in my home or in foster care all the way until I was 18. I was like, whatever I can do to get out before that, it seems worth it so that I'm not stuck here. So that was really in your mind. And if I remember correctly, when you were actually applying, some really cool things were going on. And we have a very large intergenerational audience that listens to the Herb podcast. So we got some folk out there, young ones who are going, mm, what about that college, you know, essay and the rest of it. And you actually spilled your beans about 
what happened in your life. And it was incredibly relieving to you from what I can read. It was just a tad raw. And that's an understatement for the folks who were going to be reading this essay and, and trying to get you in. So what was it like writing it down, finally getting it down on a piece of paper? I had different experiences depending on what I was writing. And for me being in creative nonfiction classes where it was like, we're going to take our lives and we're going to turn it into art. That was so freeing to me. And I was able to write about parts of my parents' divorce. And one of my parents went through a gender transition and transitioned from male to female. And I had never had the space to really think about that or how it ended up impacting me and the way I thought about womanhood. And so that was so freeing. And at the same time, I really struggled with laying bare my family's situation. That was really, really hard because it felt like a big betrayal. And I think a lot of us, when we're coming from a family where there are a lot of secrets, to suddenly say, like, I can't keep these secrets anymore, even if it is just for an admissions committee to get into college, it, it really can feel like a betrayal. And that part really did for me and was really challenging. But they read it. They did. Yeah, I think you had to pare it down a tad, right? I think that was a nice way to put it. We edited the hell out of that one. And then there you were. Why do you think you got into Harvard? I mean, in other words, what was going on with that? Well, I think I had a pretty strong essay. My college essay ended up winning a national writing contest for teenagers, one of the biggest contests in the country. And so I think I did a pretty good job of fitting into that story of like, look, this girl who's overcome so much. And I really was very, very studious. Like I loved school. I loved studying. The academics were not going to be a problem for me. But I do think it's, it's challenging when you're coming from a non-traditional background, which at some place like Harvard, non-traditional is anybody who's not coming from a top prep school and has an alumni parent to really prove like, okay, I'm somebody who could succeed here and I have the support that I need to succeed. Well, see, that was the next challenge. Okay. The good news is you got in. Now you're sitting there with a lot of wealthy people, most. Okay. Let's be honest. Well-connected, as you just you know noted, and that can be highly intimidating to a lot of people. And you know when people say, "Hey, you know, why don't you come up to the Cape and let's hang out?" Dad's got a four hundred acre place up there, and whatever. And it's interesting. I've mentored a number of medical students who came from very tough backgrounds and who had to kind of fight through a lot of that because they had not just undergraduate as well as high school, but also the whole medical school kind of gig. And um, I've heard really tough times, and this is why it's important to have resources there to help you. What were your resources to kind of navigate what was going on there? Honestly, I wish I had had more. I kind of believed that I would get there and then everything would be hunky-dory and that it would be easier to navigate than it was. But I definitely went through a lot of culture shock, even just going from the Midwest to the Northeast. I was like, what are boat shoes? 
right? What's a barber jacket? Like you really use it for pheasant hunting? What's a pheasant? So I was really lucky that I had a mentor from high school who had sat me down and had a career talk with me. She was like, you cannot major in English, anything with English, French, or literature in the name. Other people can major in that, but you're going to need a job. And I really appreciated that kind of brutal honesty. And I also had a boyfriend. He was 10 years older than me. It was a very unhealthy relationship, but he had gone to an elite college. And so he was really actually essential to help me figure out how to navigate the system. I didn't realize, oh, you go to office hours, you know, where you can talk to the professor for an extension or to change your grade. Those things were not even things that were on my radar. Excellent. So I think one of the lessons here, because I'm all about life lessons, love them, which is it doesn't take a horde of resources at the front door. Even one resource that turns out to be golden can really mean everything in the world because you had a lot of challenges ahead of you. And there you have it. Then, of course, you made it through you know, college. And what was it like on graduation day? Tell me about that. So I actually, my junior year, I walked on to the rowing team. I had never been in a boat in my life before Harvard. I mean, I guess I'd been in a boat, but I didn't know what rowing was. And I ended up joining the team and we were competing at the NCAA Division I championships during graduation. Nice. So I never walked across the stage. I actually don't have my diploma. I never picked it up. But it was a day just of huge relief to me where I was like, I made it through and my life is going to be totally different now. So I want you to revisit that for a second. You know, I'm a triathlete. So the very fact that, you know, you were out there rowing, I'm like, you know, I totally get it. Who needs the hell, you know, the graduate, whatever. Instead, I want you to think about this for a second. Did you have a moment or two or three where you said to yourself, I came from homelessness, foster care, locked up institutional stuff, a mother who was compromised at times and was there, but maybe not so much. And you had all of this going on. You could have easily been sidebarred forever into any one of these rabbit holes, but you didn't. And you had a dream. And this is, you know, one of the first things to think about is like the power of words, your mother told you about Stanford. She told you a story. It stuck in your brain and it was life saving. So of all the gifts your mother has given you, that is one of the most precious and priceless of all because it's stuck and, and it wouldn't let go. And it gave you hope. It gave you hope so that, you know, you had a plan, Stan. Okay. You got a plan. Your your ass is going to end up in college. No matter what, you're going to figure it out. I love to teach people the MSU word. You know, it's my favorite trademark thing. MSU just makes stuff up. Like we're going to write this essay. We're going to see if it were, oh, you want it edited? No problem. Pivot. Show you can adapt and adjust and, and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. Then flash forward. 
academically, you did well at Harvard. You met so many people. You met your fiance. I, if I remember correctly, you were a summer intern. See how I remember these things? It's sort of amazing. She actually read the book. And so I just wondered as you stood there, you know, wherever you were when this graduation time frame occurred, did you just sort of sit there and go, holy God, what the hell just happened? I just went from living in a car to doing this. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit about the famous black ballerina, you know, Misty Copeland, where her mom and and her siblings and she lived in a motel room and also in a car. And here she is, the first black swan. And you, you just kind of like, whoa, let me just wrap my head around what just happened. So let's go to that place. And what would you tell another young woman who was kind of stuck in that younger vortex? What would you say as you reflect back on what happened to you? Near the end of my time at Harvard, there were these moments when I would be walking through the yard and I would see the fall or the spring light like on the ivy on the buildings. And it was almost like deja vu because it was exactly like I had imagined in my mind. And there was something just so precious about having had a dream and then having that dream come true. And I knew for a lot of my classmates, you know, they kind of took it for granted that they were there or that they'd attend an Ivy League school. And I felt really lucky to have been able to recognize the gift for what it was. Looking back at my younger self, I wish that I had had someone tell me that being a teenager is really, really hard. It's hard in any circumstance. Your brain and your body is changing so much. Nothing is really balanced or on center. You're just growing every single day. And especially if you're in a situation where it doesn't feel like adults have your back or you have the support that you need, I just wish I had known that one day I would be able to really take care of myself and advocate for myself. And that it was particularly difficult to be at the mercy of these adults, but it just was going to feel a hundred times better once I turned 18 and then once I turned 22 and then once I turned 25 to really be able to make those decisions for myself. So I just really wish I had had that voice in my head telling me, you know, just make it through, just grow up, get older. And just by nature of that, everything is going to get easier. You said something, well, you say, you've said a lot of cool things, but you said something that really was quite fascinating. And again, the little clinical scientist in me is, is popping up now. And that is you had a vision of the ivy, right? And the sun's rays on the ivy and the ivy covered buildings and what Harvard looked like and everything. There's also a really strong science about envisioning success. So I remember when I ran my first marathon, they said, go to the finish line and just eyeball the sucker. Just kind of go, okay, I see myself going through here. It may not be pretty. <laughs> I may be crawling on my belly, whatever, but 
my ass is going to be on this finish line if it's the last thing I do. So now you have this picture of all the ribbons and the, the color and the hoopla and the rest of it. And now you can make it happen in your mind. You go, okay, half marathon. I'm waiting for this sucker. You know, we're coming, coming for you. Well, you did the same thing in the back of your mind. You had that Stanford thing going on. It was kind of like a little gerbil wheel going and it was like Stanford, Stanford, you know, things could have been different. Well, here you are. And now you've got this new world, but you envisioned it to a certain degree. You did. You might've looked up pictures. You might've, you know, whatever resources you had out there to imagine what it would have been like. Whereas maybe other kids were there already because brother graduated from Harvard. So we all, you know, been there, done that. Dad comes here for alumni stuff. So, you know, we accompanied him and he, we had fun. This is kind of like old home. For you, it was a dream that has been realized. And so this is something you could tell young people. And that is think about a dream. Now start laying down a vision and a strategy. Like what would that really look like? And obviously a lot of it is kind of like fantasy world, but still a lot of it's not. I mean, there's pictures of Ivy covered buildings and that's the way it goes. I mean, nothing's changed there. So I love that. I love that that one little piece, it made a lot of sense. And then what do you tell people who just sort of off the cuff say, you know, just like that, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. I hear that a lot. It's kind of like, you know, get yourself together. Come on now. We can make it work. Do it. And no matter how heinous your circumstances are, you live in, in the hood and you're spending half your time trying to dodge bullets, let alone go to school. There's not much of anyone there who's helping you because who's graduated from high school, let alone college. That's really tough to your point about having opportunity to be able to optimize, you know, this whole issue of grit and resilience. So what would you do now? What would you tell young people now? Let's put on an activist head. And where would you go with this? We've had so much rhetoric around grit and resilience as these personal character traits that individuals either have or don't have. But now there's all of this research that shows that resilience is shaped so much by our relationships that we have with other people. And in particular, for young people, having a solid relationship with two adults who care about them makes a world of difference. And so when I hear people talking about these kids just have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, I'm thinking, okay, are you mentoring? If you mentor a child, you can help that child change their life. Like, are you getting involved in your community, in your church, in talking to a young person who needs a resume review or an interview? Are you coaching a local sports team? There's so much going wrong in the world, and it's so easy to feel defeated or like nothing we do makes a difference. But I think that my story really shows the way that even very imperfect people doing as much as they can, can just make such an enormous difference in the lives of a young person and really just change the whole trajectory of their future. And I think that 
in addition to that, we should be aware of what are the social factors that are going on that are making it really hard for young people to succeed. And how do we fix that? It's going to be really hard to study if you're hungry. And luckily, that's something that we can change. And it makes me really sad that I feel like over the past couple of years, people aren't necessarily thinking about children and caring about children in the way that they deserve. Because that investment in a young person is something that pays off in every single way. It just makes good financial sense and emotional sense, all of the senses, to put money and resources and time into our youth. I just applaud you on that one. I am a mentor. I've mothered, as it were, more kids than I know what to do with. And I absolutely wish that there was a rich network of more mentors who would just take kids on at multiple levels. I love teenagers, especially. Yes, you're a pain in the ass, but then again, so was I when I was your age. So since I was been there, done that, and it was not pretty, I understand. And, you know, understanding also that the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is where the executive function takes place, does not finish its development until the age of 25, to ask someone who's 18 to understand which way is up is ridiculous because they do not literally have the brain power to do that. Now, obviously, some are more mature than others, but still, we cannot deny physiology, and that is you don't have all the cylinders under the hood until you're 25. And so during this time, you're vulnerable. To crazy stuff. You know, you'll believe anything and you could easily be kicked to the curb. So I think the mentoring thing is absolutely rich. So tell us about your life right now. So we went from this, I mean, I got to tell you out there in the Her Podcast land, this book Acceptance was just crazy good. It was just, whoa, uh, it was very, very powerful. It was raw. It was authentic. And the other thing too, little one, you're a damn good writer. And since I write books and I've been writing and editing for years, I happen to know that that's a talent you either have or you don't. Like some people are artists. I can connect two dots with a ruler. I can do that. Yet my sister is a magnificent artist and my brain doesn't work that way. But I can write and you can write. You're a very good writer, and I've read some of your other essays. And so did that surprise you that you were a good writer? I think so, because I've struggled so much with making sense throughout my life. As a teenager, I was trying to talk about my life, and people were like, this doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? Part of it is being a teenager and being a young person, like you said, who doesn't have a fully developed frontal cortex. But when I actually wrote my first thing that made sense to people... I was like, I didn't know that I had this power. And so it feels really amazing when it works. You know, of course, when it's not working, it feels horrible. But I'm really grateful that after college, I had a career in tech. I was a software engineer at Google and then at Facebook. I refuse to call it meta still. And then shortly after I sold my book, I transitioned to writing full time. And so I do speaking to young people and businesses, and I also am doing more reporting 
about things like inequality, mental health, child welfare. And that has been a really fun career change for me. Interesting. Do you miss tech? You know, I miss the money. I miss the coworkers and the free food. But I constantly had the sense of like, my life is short. And there's this thing that I really, really want to be doing. And so basically, as soon as I could go do that, I was out the door. Oh my God, there's such a life lesson in that one. Because you know what's really interesting is that I can't tell you how many people put what they really want to do on the back burner. And meanwhile, they're, you know, doing the thing for money and doing the thing for prestige. And someone else told them that this would be the coolest thing to do. And, you know, I could go on and on. But I love the fact that you said, screw all that. I'm feeling good about this over here. And I'm going to stop, hit the pause button And we're going to crack course here a little bit. I actually did that in my own life. After 20 years of training, I had a really cushy situation working in critical care and the rest of it and picked up all the toys and the bling that you do when you're starting to lay down all those foundations. And one day I sat in the ICU and I said, "Uh, no, I actually miss teaching. I miss the academic thing and and not just sort of like doing the revenue thing. And so I ended up going to a Harvard meeting that changed my life. I sat next to, I'm from the University of California at Berkeley, where I have three degrees. I didn't want to leave, so I just kept coming up with another degree. No, but I want to have this one too. I didn't go to medical school yet. So I ended up sitting next to someone who said, you know, Pam, listen, you're ideal for a Pew Foundation scholarship in nutrition and metabolism, which is something that you really have always wanted to do. And there you have it. So I ended up pivoting everyone I told about this decision to sell my home in lovely Chevy Chase, Maryland, and then to go back to the University of California, thought I had lost my mind. But I did, because I certainly didn't do it for money. Uh, I was paid as a fellow, uh, moonlighted in the ER, made more money in one night in the ER than I made in two months as a fellow. Just to give you an idea, this is why they thought I'd lost my mind. And then I went to the National Institutes of Health as a senior research fellow. And as it turns out, that was the smartest decision of my life. And it was all because I listened to myself. I said, "Mm -hmm." I did a gut check. It's like, no, there's something really important here. And that's also when I began to write. And so what you did, Emmy, was incredibly smart at such a young age when the siren of software engineering and the bucks and the free food and all the rest of it and the glitz and the bling were waiting for you. You said, yeah, maybe not so much, not so much. You remind me of Ryan Holiday who wrote that the obstacle is the way. And, you know, he had done the big blitzy experience as a corporate kind of guy and he crashed and burned. And then he had to reinvent himself. He's a stoic. So he writes about stoicism, but he does it in a millennial way. I hate it when young people are this smart. It makes me crazy. But you now are folded into this and you're coming at it from a, a very interesting place 
of authenticity. Been there, done that. And I love that. And this is why the book resonated with me in a big way. And this is a book that I'm going to be recommending, not just here on the podcast, but to so many other people, because you did a great job with it. So what I would encourage you to do is just keep rocking it. Keep rocking it. Just go out there and just like, don't believe in the narratives that are being shoved your way. And instead, just do what you've been doing, standing up and saying, no, that's not exactly the way I'm taking this. So listen up because I'm smart. I did my homework and this is what it's going to look like. Just keep doing that because I see you having a, a marvelous future laying down a strong foundation in this. Does this make sense? Yeah. Thanks so much. I, I love hearing about your own journey and it's going to buoy me through those hard days where, you know, you're afraid of failure and you're afraid to admit to yourself what you want because it means that you might not get it. But we've all got to take that risk. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And that was Helen Keller. I have that plastered everywhere. And that means I'm always going with the daring adventure. Now, I'm not an idiot. I don't do bungee jumping or something. But on the other hand, when people say, hey, what about this? You know, I'll have a moment and I'll say, hell to the yeah. Let's do it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? I fall on my doofus and it didn't work out so well. Well, guess what that turned into? A life lesson. So you see, it's a win-win all the way around. You just have to have the courage, self-compassion and belief in self to be able to just sort of take that first step and go, okay, let's rock and roll here. Let's see what happens. Make sense? I love that. Thank you for your wisdom, Pam. So what are you going to be doing next? You know, as we're closing this thing out, because I could talk to you forever. So what, what do you want to do next? Do you have like another vision? Any more IB covered buildings? You know, what's going on in your head? Is it creating a new lane for yourself to start working? Tell me about it. Well, I'm working on some big juicy stories, which are related to fertility and inequality and just what it means to be a parent. I'm gearing up for that phase of my life. And so looking around me at what's happening and what the good and the bad and the ugly. And I am really excited to be writing more about other people and also nurturing a community through my, I have a Substack called Postmortem, and it's been wonderful to really invest in myself as a writer and reporter. I just think that that's so cool. And when you're writing about people, when you're doing your thing, when people have said in the past, you know, think outside the box, I've heard this so many times, I've never seen a box. <laughs> I don't even yeah. know where the hell the box yeah. is. So I'm thinking like me. You see, and that's the way I see you, you doing your thing too, in a beautiful way. And I would highly recommend you read Ryan Holiday's personal story. I think you'll resonate with it in a big way. I think he's now, I don't know, whatever the hell he is, 36 or whatever, but he's got some interesting things to say about how he was able to redefine himself. And you've done a phenomenal job. And keep it up for women too. Very important when you talk about womanhood and all the rest of it, rock and roll with that. 
we need a lot more voices out there really speaking to our uniqueness as a wonderful entity that really wants to be heard and respected in a big way. So all I can say, Emmy, is that I'm so happy we were able to connect on the podcast. I was very much looking forward to this. And my bill will be in the mail for all of the uh, coaching and the ideas that I have shared. <laughs> I do this all the time. Oh, my gosh. I just so love nurturing and supporting in any way I can young women like you because you're just absolutely amazing. So everyone out there, we've been talking to Emmy Neetfeld. That's N-I-E-T. F-E-L-D. And if you want to learn more about her, run on over to her website, which is Emmy Neatfeld. And that the way it's spelled, yeah, there it is. It's Emmy is E-M-I, just so you know, Emmy Neatfeld. And the book is called Acceptance, a Memoir. It is absolutely phenomenal. Emmy, thank you so much for being on the Her Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Now you're going to be a repeat offender, right? That means we're going to have you back again and again and again. I love it. Yeah. Once I write my fertility book, I can come back. Okay. We got the fertility book. And all I can say is everyone out there, run on over to iTunes to rate and review this terrific episode because we love your feedback. And here's another shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Solaray, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y. You want to know about her life stages, run to your local health food store or check it out on solaray.com. All right. This has been another amazing Her podcast. I'm Dr. Pam Peak, your host, and I want to thank each and every one of you for listening in and being such an important part of our Her podcast community. Pop on over to drpeak.com to learn more about my work and social media. And join me every week for another Her podcast where you're going to hear from extraordinary, entertaining, and engaging thought leaders just like Emmy Neatfeld as we share our wit and wisdom for you to enjoy. Thanks so much. And remember that your time in this world may be limited, but the things you can do with that time are not. So get on out there and seize the day. Have a great one. <laughs>